Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are covering Preacher, issues 59 and 60. Yeah, now we were planning to cover And Every Dog His Day in this episode. We we advertised it. We really, we got, we got the anticipation going. We talked it over and decided to break the Preacher finale down into one additional episode. So we do apologize to those dogs. They will yet have their day. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of what the saying is all about, right? Exactly. So, I when, mean... When your satisfaction has been deferred by two ruffians such as us. Right. So this week we have Texas, by God. I think we're calling this episode The Thunder of His Guns. At least I think that's a better title. I just love the phrase, Texas, by God. Do you know what the source of that phrase is? I think it was like some outlaw was like cornered by like a posse. Okay. And it was his last words before they shot him dead. <laughs> He's like, Texas, by God. <laughs> okay, that makes a lot of sense. That, put that, that puts that in a lot of context. Because I could not find the source, but I thought that was a memorable phrase. Anyway. In addition to being the title of this issue... Texas, by God, is also is also the name of one of the trades in the old editions mm-hmm. of the trades. And it is a phrase that graces the back cover of the first Preacher collection in this edition. So it's a phrase with a certain amount of mythic resonance. It's a phrase that Ennis and others have repeatedly felt encapsulates the series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Texas identity does run deep in this series. The comic book is all about Texas and God. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That there's a a famous quote that has three words and that's two of them. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So preacher number 59, Texas by God. Written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, colors by Pamela Rambo, lettered by Clem Robbins, and edited by Axel Alonzo. Talk about the cover. The folks at home are going to want to hear about this cover. The cover is by Glenn Fabry, and it depicts Jesse Custer's hard-set face looming over the Alamo. This is the first of the set of covers that lead into the final issue, and each of them is going to feature the visage of one of our main characters. Just a hard-set face of somebody or another. (laughs) Nobody's having a good time? Nobody's having a good time. It's Preacher. (laughs) So we open at the Alamo. Yeah, once again, the Alamo. You got the cover, and then you turn the page, and you got the Alamo again. Narration tells us, it ends here. It ends in the place that the legend began. So we are officially in the ending now. Yes. Seven, eight issues to go? Eight issues to go. Yeah, we didn't want to cover eight issues in a single episode. Not because we couldn't do it, but because, you know, it wouldn't be fair to other podcasts. (laughs) Wouldn't be fair to your producer, more like. (laughs) who cares (laughs) oh Sean the fact that you think that was even a consideration now as we turn the page the narration goes on look too close and the legend cracks which is true they mention Bowie might have been a slaver or a drunk that Davy Crockett might have begged for his life but the narration says to dwell on such things is to miss the point They gave Sam Houston time to build his army. They gave the victors at San Jacinto their battle cry. They gave the greatest state in the Union her mythology. For Texas, it was the beginning. But for Bowie and Crockett and Travis and 180 men, it was the end. 
And we see Jesse Custer. He is leaving his truck. He is carrying a shovel and a rope. Mm-hmm. How the hell did I end up here? So we flash back to how the hell that happened. Yeah, we've got a guy here. I thought at first that it was Jesus Desaad, but There's it is not. a fair number of white-haired gentlemen in this series. It is actually the Angel de Blanc not being very angelic. He is fucking a disinterested woman. Yeah, so we're at the Paradise Casino, which is apparently where the angels have set up to do their uh, hookers and blow. And, oh, that's what that is! It's cocaine! <laughs> I was like, why has he had his face in a cream pie? <laughs> I don't know, man, them sugar donuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I love how this prostitute is completely uninterested in him. She's actually reading a book as he is having sex with her. She's reading Greg Rucka's 1996 novel, Keeper, the first in his Atticus Kodiak series. Oh my god, she actually is. I did not notice, but the book she's reading is totally by comic scribe Greg Rucka. Now, I want to point out that this is a fetish. Some people like this. Some people like for the person not to be paying attention? Or Some... just for them to be literary in general? <laughs> well, both. Yeah, I mean, like, there's that famous, I think it's John Waters quote about if you get to their place and they don't have books, don't fuck them. Oh, okay, yeah. I can see where that comes from. But no, I mean, particularly some men have the fetish of being ignored while engaging in sexual activity. Okay. Man, I'm not judging. Whatever but, gets you there. But there is a knock at the door and, hey, it's this gag again. Welcome back, this gag. What gag is that? Fiore opens the door a crack, spies the person on the other side, slams it shut, throwing his back against it, crying, FUCK! We've seen him do this before. I can't remember if it's always Fiore in this comic. We also saw this in an issue of Hellblazer, so it's a, it's a classic Garth Ennis gag. Ah, it's, it's one of Garth Ennis' go-to gags. Yeah, and we saw the same scene happen in the same room when the saint came to question these guys earlier. This time, it is Reverend Jesse Custer. Do you have any idea off the top of your head how many issues it's been since we've seen these dudes? The last time we saw them was, was when the saint questioned them, which was when he was looking for Jesse, and the answer was Jesse was in Masada. So that was like issue 26-ish. It's been a long-ass time. Yeah. So no wonder I thought that one of them was Jesus Desaad. I mean, who we haven't seen in an even longer time. And who would certainly be surprised and probably yell obscenity if he saw Jesse Custer at his door. Jesse promised to come beat him up when he got out of prison. When Jesus got out of prison, Jesse wasn't in prison. No, Jesse hasn't been to prison. Okay. Although really, like, he's committed many crimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the weird things about the series, is that Jesse and Cassidy, like, are ruffians. <laughs> they yeah. are they are troublemakers, and they get into a lot of fights, and they they are generally treated as, like, it's all boys will be boys, right? They're engaging in, like, fun violence that the people that they're fighting also consensually engage in well and they're outlaws you know it wouldn't be a cowboy comic book if they weren't living an outlaw lifestyle well that is true so de blanc is enjoying the vinegar strokes this is not the first appearance on the word of guys podcast or the vinegar strokes don't say that <laughs> it's not the first time we've heard that phrase i think is what you mean <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> when Fiori comes flying through his door, we see splinters of wood everywhere. And Jesse steps on him on his way into the room. Yeah, and then he politely asks the young lady to leave so he can talk to these gentlemen. And good morning to you on this fine day. 
Ma'am, would you mind leaving us for a moment? Me and these fellas got some things we need to chew over. DeBlanc assumes Jesse is here to kill them. Could be, boy. Yeah, and he slugs him one. This seems... Gratuitous? Yeah, pretty uncalled for. But he talks about why he did it later. Yeah, well, the Adephi are to blame for a lot of the things that have gone wrong in this series. Not as to blame as some others, but we'll come back to that. Right. So we turn the page, and uh, the less said, the better. <laughs> There's a very close close-up here, but here's what's going on. Star is peeing through a catheter because, previously on Preacher, his uh, dick was bitten off by a dog. Yeah, an angry dog belonging to Eisenstein. Jezebel was her name. Yes. Was it angry? I don't know. I'm actually projecting there. Angry, loyal, well-trained, all the same kind of a deal. Right. Star. Maybe that dog just loves biting genitals. <laughs> that's like the that's like the line from Firefly. It's why you took the job. <laughs> Little man loved fire. So he's got the faces of everyone he hates. Jesse, Cassidy, to Aaronique, Eisenstein printed on his toilet paper. And he says to himself, Life without genitalia, day 51. Well, you, you didn't say the line that he says while he's using the toilet paper. I didn't. I didn't think it was necessary. Which it wasn't is, that witty. How do you like it? How do you fucking well like it, you bastards? <laughs> it's not witty, but I still think it's funny. Like, he's so petty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and he's, he's getting increasingly petty. Like, this guy had lofty ambitions at the beginning of the series. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the Paradise Casino, Jesse interrogates the angels, who are surprised to learn that he wants to be rid of Genesis, the spiritual parasite that gives him the word of God. Genesis's spirit is tied to your own. Which means, not until death do you part, Reverend Custer. Figured as much. Oh, I also love that they ask him, how'd you find us? And he says, caught your commercial. <laughs> right, yeah, they're not exactly laying low. Like, I like the idea that he just saw an ad for Paradise Casino. For a casino with an angelic device in its marketing, and was like, oh, that's where they got to. See, I, the way I imagined it is that it has both of their faces. <laughs> <laughs> that they're just, like, standing there on the floor, like, of the casino. Being come like, on down. Come on down. <laughs> like Al Kessel. Our good luck can be yours as well. <laughs> that's how casinos work. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> False advertising. He says, I've been hankering to get back to kicking ass for a couple months now. You two assholes fit the bill just fine. So, anyway, what Jesse wants from them is help finding somebody. But first, he changes the subject. He asks them about the fall. That's the capital F fall. Really did happen, huh? Wasn't just some poem? Oh, it happened all right. I'm still trying to forget it. And we see this three-quarter page of angels brutally tearing each other apart with their bare hands. Yeah, this is this is some magnificently gory bullshit. <laughs> Just like a dude's ripping another dude's heart out through his through his throat. An angel's gouging another guy's eye out. It's absolute mayhem. And you can tell, I think, that Steve Dillon had a lot of fun drawing this. Yeah. And in case it's not clear at this point, we're talking about Lucifer's fall, the civil war in heaven. Right. The Adephi stood ready to fight, Fiore explains, except de Blanc, who was getting drunk. But the loyalists... Oh, I thought he was literally hiding in a brandy barrel. I mean, I guess I thought that he, like, drank it down until he could get in there. Oh, I see. So you were picturing some kind of comical combination of the two. Yeah. I see. Also, apparently they have cellars in heaven with brandy, but anyway... 
Well, who'd want to go if they didn't? (laughs) (laughs) The Loyalist Seraphi won even without the Adephi's help, and the surviving rebels were cast down into hell. This is all previously on Paradise Lost. That was the longest fall of all. And Jesse asks, why did it happen? Because of you. Right, because God announced the creation of life that could decide for itself. Men of free will. The rebels rebelled because they knew men would turn from God and war with each other. Half the host went berserk on the spot. Why would he do that, I wonder? Hmm? Well, the Lord knew everything, right? As long as he was in heaven, ain't nothing could have surprised him. So why foist a crazy thing like this on his angels? When he'd have known there'd be such god-awful slaughter. He'd have known half of you'd jump one way and half of you the other, depending on your nature. So why do it? Now, we're gonna see God be surprised in this series, and I think we have before. I think the distinction that is being made is that he's only omniscient when he's on the throne of heaven, which he's been avoiding since Genesis was born. Right. Fiori tries to sputter an answer to Jesse's question. DeBlanc just says, Firelanda moves in mysterious ways. Well, you let me know, you ever figure it out. So anyway, who is he trying to find? You could say it's one of them men of free will you were talking about. Or used to be, I guess. Back in San Francisco, Star is reading a report in the hotel room when he flips out and shoots it to pieces. Improper use of inverted commas, Hoover. Improper use of inverted commas. Now, in fairness, it does turn out Hoover was using them wrong. Well, like, and super wrong, too. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, Hairstar become increasingly petty as his obsessive quest has gone kind of worse and worse for him. Yeah. But this is really an example. Uh, this is kind of like breaking away from that mold, because here we see him having a very reasoned response to an outrageous stimuli. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. This is not like shooting a radio when it's playing an annoying song. This is justified violence. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is... This, I think, most people would agree is the actual <laughs> correct response to what happened. In the process of Star correcting Hoover's grammar, we do learn that there's a critical shortage of surviving Samson troops, and that Star also hates air quotes. <laughs> he means quotes, you know? Like, don't do that. Don't ever do that. I hate that shit. She does the little gesture, and yeah... He's, he's not having it. Featherstone mentions that the hotel has been complaining about the guns going off in the suite, but quickly redacts it when Star turns to her. What have they been saying? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They haven't breathed a word on the subject. This gun isn't big enough. Yes, Star orders his underlings to find him a bigger gun. Yeah, and he's just, like, openly compensating here. Yeah. Obviously. It'll get more obvious. <laughs> He refuses to answer Featherstone's questions relayed from La Saint Marie about his plans and about what happened to Eisenstein. That was the, the Grail Auditor sent to check on him in the last story arc that he eventually killed. Right. We presume. It happened off panel. Yes. Uh, he tried to kill him a bunch, though, before he succeeded. Yeah, so we knew he wanted to. Yeah. And we know he obtained victory, albeit at a cost. He's Hair Star, and it's a person other than him. Of course he wanted to. He is Sacred Executioner. To the extent that subtlety was ever in the Sacred Executioner's bailiwick, it was never a tool that Star had in his personal toolbox. Right. As we learned from his audition process. It's just not a club he has in his bag. (laughs) He's getting worse by the day. I'm beginning to wonder just what he might be capable of, says Featherstone. That, that, that... Hoover, are you seriously trying to tell me you can't bring yourself to say the word motherfucker? Featherstone! In the present, 
Jesse finds a skeleton buried next to a stone fireplace, now all that's left standing of an old building. Yeah, and he ties it to what looks like a ladder or a section of fence here. And the skeleton's ribs are pierced by a shovel. Pater. Yep, and the skeleton is also wearing a gun. Jesse says, come on if you're coming. Meanwhile, Cassidy finishes off a bottle of JD, psyching himself up, and enters a small Catholic church. Right, Mr. Cassidy, are you ready to do this? No, Mr. Cassidy, I'm fucking well not. He tells the young priest to fuck off. I was just about to lock up, but it's never too late, is it? As a matter of fact, it was too late a long time ago, Father. And I'd rather talk to the organ grinder than the monkey. So do us a favor and fuck away off. So he approaches an unseen figure at the front of the church, and he says, How are you? I wanted a word with you if you've got a minute. I wondered if you'd be interested in making a deal. As we come across to the next page, the person he's talking to is Jesus Christ. Or, more specifically, the likeness crucified on the wall of the church. Right, yeah. Man, I love that. This is the character we thought we could trust goes to the bad guy to make a deal scene, but the bad guy in question is Jesus. <laughs> well, and we don't think we can trust Cassidy anymore. <clears throat> no, so. that's true. Maybe it's more like he's seeing the light. It's so brazen, like... If he's talking to God, he could literally go anywhere and talk to anything. I, I guess that's assuming that God is omniscient now, which I said he wasn't earlier, but I guess he's going to act on this information, so... Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be omniscient to have some knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it could be that receiving prayers is, is not a power that he loses. Yeah, yeah, that makes a sort of sense. So maybe there's a <laughs> maybe there's a sort of attunement that can be approached by doing things in the proper way. I just uh I thought it was very deliberately symbolic the way the scene goes. Yeah. And so that brings us to the end of issue 59. Preacher number 60, The Thunder of His Guns, features the same creative team on the cover. We have a close-up on the saint looming over his own skeleton. You mean the saint of killers? Yes, the Saint of Killers. The Saint of Shooting Folks Dead. Yeah, I don't mean Mr. Simon Templar. He has not been a major character in this <laughs> drama. Oh, man, you remember that movie with uh, Val Kilmer? Yeah, the Saint 1987 movie. That movie was pretty sweet. <laughs> I, I remember. I honestly didn't know which way that sentence was going to go I until remember, the end. I remember liking it a lot. Rage or Basia. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that movie earlier today. Which is the weird fucking part, right? <laughs> well, I guess, no, not because you brought it up. It's not weird at all. Oh, okay, yeah. It's um, just your brain. We're taking a trip through Sean's brain here, folks. No, but I was thinking about, like, Quantum of Solace takes place during a water shortage. Yeah. The Saint 1997 movie takes place during a heating oil shortage. Was there a movie that takes place during a crude oil shortage? There will be blood? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you could actually use IMDb's plot keywords. Yeah. Just search for oil shortage and see what movies come up. Don't see oil shortage as a plot keyword. Okay. There's oil, oil industry, big oil, oil company, crude oil, oil well, drilling for oil, oil spill. <laughs> Just like deprivation in general, maybe. Oil business, oil field, oil dependency, oil tanker. Metal Gear Solid 2. Yep. Just for fun, here are some movies that are tagged oil industry. Mm -hmm. There Will Be Blood. 
And I think these are like by most most popular. Oh, sure, sure. There will be blood, Deepwater Horizon, hmm. Body of Lies, A Most Violent Year, Giant, which I would think would be higher, but Tony Erdman, which I've never heard of, The Chase, State of Play, Ice, The Runner, Who Killed the Electric Car, <laughs> and Merchants of Doubt. I've seen almost none of those movies. And Syriana wasn't on the list. I mean, it wasn't on the list prior to the point where I stopped reading the list. Yes, Tony Erdman was the movie that I thought it was. It was nominated for a couple of Oscars in 2016, I think. Okay. This is the movie where a woman refuses to spend time with her estranged father, so he disguises himself as a life coach to get close to her. And, like, she knows who it is immediately. It's (laughs) it's a bad disguise. (laughs) Well, I think if you're someone's dad, probably, like, get disguising yourself (laughs) so you can hang out with them is just basically a bad plan. Right. But, so it's like Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. But with the oil industry in there somewhere. I think she works for the oil industry. I don't know. I see. So, on the first page of this comic book... Oh, right. We were reading a comic book. (laughs) The Saint of Killers looms out of the dark desert, closing in on Jesse, who can never get used to this part. I have been describing him as looming a lot. It is accurate. Yep, he's a loomer. Meanwhile, in San Francisco... Star now has the three fifty seven Magnum that he asked for. Yeah, this big-ass, dirty, hairy gun. He's admiring it in the mirror while saying, Doom cock, over and over again. <laughs> I told you it would get more obvious. <laughs> that is not subtle at all. You notice he stopped wearing his Panama hat? Oh, yeah. Like, at this point, he's decided that there's no point. Ah, fuck it, he probably said. Right. And then he probably threw it in the air and shot it a bunch of times. The Panama hat was to hide the fact that Jesse cut him on the forehead and made his head look kind of like a dick. This happened way back in Masada. Like an old wee pecker. Right. What is it now, Featherstone? Uh, She tells him that that woman is here. Yeah, and she's making a face of such distaste. Because she wants to be the one who's intimate with Hairstar. This is true. That woman, we infer from many details, is a prostitute. Details including that we know of Star's sexual history. And LaSalle Marie have called again. Well, fucking stall them again. Jesus. Don't torment yourself, Featherstone, says Hoover, being a nice guy. You're far too good for him. Yeah, she's got kind of a distraught look. Now, I'm not being ironic here, at least not fully. I can't tell if he's being a nice guy or just being a nice guy. Okay. But he's certainly trying to talk her out of her crush on someone else. That is true. And yeah, and we haven't recapped it this episode, but Hoover likes Featherstone, Featherstone likes Star. Star doesn't really like anything or anybody. He likes poop, I think we decided. (laughs) (laughs) Because he had a thought bubble that was saying shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I don't think, I guess my inclination is to give Hoover the benefit of the doubt on this one, because I don't feel like he just has any pretense as a person after what happened to him with the with the grains of sand. That's kind of true, and, and like, legitimately, he is being supportive, mm-hmm. like, when Star is being awful. But, yeah, I couldn't tell if he had an ulterior motive or not. Right. Do we need to mention the swordfish on the wall of Hairstar's suite? I hadn't noticed it. What do you have to say about it? The relevance of the swordfish will become apparent in a couple of issues. All right. 
If you have a swordfish on the wall in Act 1, you know, somebody's got to cut down a tree with it in Act 3. That's just, that's just how it works. Yeah. Have you ever seen, um, <laughs> have you ever seen the movie of the Dunwich Horror, the one with, um, Dean Stockwell? I have seen that movie. I remember close to nothing about it. Same here, but it has, like, one of the all-time stupid movie deaths, because... Wilbur Waitley is breaking into the museum to, like, steal the Necronomicon, and this cop catches him. And Waitley, like, the cop has a gun. (laughs) I don't know what happened to the gun. Maybe he lost it earlier in the fight. But Waitley picks up this spear and is holding it out. And that's when the cop decides the best move is to run right at him. (laughs) So instead of, like, like, turning and finding your gun, which went skittering across the floor. He charges, and he gets, uh, he gets stabbed. He charges a guy with a spear. I'm just thinking about it, because, like, that's how it has to happen if you're going to kill somebody in the third act of your movie with a swordfish that was mounted on the wall. Right. Spoilers. All right. Well, I'll give you this, preacher. I ain't never met a man so set on dying. That ain't what I'm here for. No, says the saint. So what might this be? He says, pointing to his bones, which Jesse has disturbed. Yeah, Jesse explains that he thought the best way to get the saint's attention was to disturb his grave. And it worked! Jesse gets to the point. He knows the saint is mad as hell at God for engineering the deaths of his wife and child and his transformation into the saint. All this happened in the Saint of Killers miniseries. And Jesse found out about it. He witnessed the entire origin of the Saint of Killers in Genesis's memories during the New Orleans story arc. Don't go telling me what I know, boy. But Jesse also knows the Saint has not been finding shit. Can't find God. So you go right ahead and pull them pistols, mister, and you kill the only man alive can set that bastard up for you. See what you're left with then. Keep talking. Yeah. God's hiding out on Earth, Jesse says. He won't face either of them directly with the power they've got. The Saint's got his magical cults that can kill anything. No wound they gave would be anything fatal, ain't that how it goes? And Jesse has Genesis, which gives him this word of God power where he can give people orders. What we gotta do is get him back to heaven. He won't break cover to get back there, not while he knows I'm watching out for him. I'd see him the second he made his move. But say Genesis was gone, and he felt safe enough to try a run for home. Won't work. Time I got up there after him, he'd be back on his damn throne. And the Lord God sits on the seat of eternity, ain't a gun in creation can scratch his hide. Not even one says Colt on the barrel. So how about if you're already up there waiting? The saint confirms that he can bust into heaven, but how is Jesse going to convince God it's safe to return? Before answering, Jesse says he's sacrificing too much here not to be sure. He makes the saint swear to see this through. You want my word? Like we're some kind of partners? You were a man once. Now you're something more, or maybe less, I ain't quite sure. But there's enough of a man left in there to keep his word. That I know from experience. Now, at this point, the Saint of Killers, just to remind Jesse who he's dealing with, puts one of his pistols in Jesse's hand so that Jesse can see the two-page spread here of the fine folks of Ratwater who he massacred. Oh, this is horrific. This is gloriously horrific. Now, the Saint of Killers got killed by some bandits who he was trying to kill for keeping him from getting to his family with medicine that they needed. Anyway, he came back from hell. He killed the bandits, but he just his, his drive for revenge wasn't satisfied, so he massacred the entire town of Ratwater. And now all the ghosts of Ratwater are closing in on Jesse and the Saint. One of the ghosts passes through Jesse, 
Yeah, this is the ghost of a little girl who's been shot through the forehead. This is like a ball of lightning hitting Jesse when he when it passes through him. Yeah, there's some kind of incredible shock or pain to Jesse as this ghost passes through him. That's what I am, boy. Do well to remember it. And by God, let's turn you loose. So this is a really effective, really tense scene with the saint sort of constantly reminding us how deadly and how hair-trigger he is. How he's not really an ally, even though he's he's refrained from killing Jesse on a couple of occasions. Right, he is trying his best to scare Jesse out of trying to make a deal with him. Right. But Jesse is undeterred. Yeah. Uh, Jesse's not the type to give up when he knows that the quest is the right thing to do. Well, yeah, he had the pistol in his hand. He could have shot the Santa Killers dead. You know, that's an interesting point. I never thought of that. But he didn't because he feels he feels he needs the Saint of Killers just as much as he feels the Saint of Killers needs him, which is why he's not worried about being shot dead himself. Right. Or at least not overly worried. Right. This is the tension that's come up over and over again between the two of them. The Saint's draw is in an eye blink, and he, he cannot miss and he cannot fail to kill with a shot. But Jesse keeps finding a way not to be killed. Jesse keeps finding a way that he's too important to kill. Right. Back in San Fran, Featherstone has good news. The first human penis transplant has been successfully performed. The first human penis transplant was performed in 2006 in a military hospital in Guangzhou, China. But the recipient couldn't adjust psychologically and had the procedure reversed 15 days later. A procedure in South Africa in 2014 was more successful, so much so that the patient recovered sexual function even faster than expected and conceived a child the next year. And the first successful human penis and scrotum transplant was performed at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in April 2018. So Star just had to hold on for a little while longer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that was edifying. <laughs> I thought people would want to know. What people? <laughs> Where do you meet people? <laughs> Come on, you read this line and had no desire to look it up? I did not look it up. <laughs> I was just absorbed just, in the... Just perfectly normal and sane, huh? I was just absorbed in the patter of the conversation. But no, the good news is that Jesse Custer will be in San Antonio in one week. Featherstone says, the caller had a southern accent. I read this as being Jesse himself was the caller. Well, how else would anyone know where Jesse's going to be? I suppose Cassidy knows where Jesse's going to be, because they have a little mandate. Yeah, exactly. But he, he would have, you know, not had a southern accent. No. He's very bad at doing any accent other than his own. We saw this in the Masada story he arc. He did try to do a Jesse Custer accent. It didn't work out well. No. So this is Jesse inviting the Grail to the mandate as well. Featherstone, Hoover, these are your orders. So now things are coming together for Star very quickly. He knows exactly what he wants to do. He wants all Samson personnel to be there in San Antonio to meet Jesse. He wants to schedule a conference call with the elite council of the Grail. At San Marie, yeah. And he wants to move the San Francisco headquarters to San Antonio. Being that they are the Grail, they can only establish their headquarters in cities named after saints. Mm, that makes total sense. This is like the Zerg can only build on the creek. On the creek. I, yeah. I knew you were going to say it. I just couldn't remember what the word for that shit was. Yeah. Hoover interjects here that if he had finished reading the report, the one that he shot full of holes, Star would... 
I shot your pathetic report, Hoover. You know that. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. You know, we've talked before about how hard it is to come into one of these story arcs in the middle. <laughs> but if he had finished the report, Star would know that there are less than two dozen Samson troops left. To make up the difference, Star calls in the troops that are shadowing every world leader. Pull them in. They'll make up the shortfall in no time. But they've spent years, decades, gaining the confidence of their targets. If we bring them in now, it'll all be for nothing. What about the plan? What about Armageddon? What about shutting up and doing as you're told? Armageddon can wait, Hoover. Now get to it! Hoover is, once again, horrified and turns to Featherstone, expecting to be able to commiserate about what a bastard star is. Mm -hmm. But, But Featherstone is just so happy that he's no longer spinning his wheels. He's got a renewed sense of purpose, and that's good enough for her. That's the hair star, I remember. So this is kind of a turning point for Star. I mean, maybe the turning point has already happened. But this is where he's sort of explicitly declaring that he's not in it for the Grail or their plan anymore. Armageddon can wait. He's going to pursue his personal grudge. Yeah. I mean, he still sort of plans to do the plan, but it's on the back burner Mm -hmm. while he tries to get even with Jesse Custer. Mm Mm-hmm. In Ratwater, Jesse says he's got no illusions about what the saint is. He's not offering peace or redemption, but he knows there's enough of a man left in there to want revenge. See, I know your story, mister. Made by God to hate like nothing and no one ever did before. I reckon that'll do. Now that's the saint telling Jesse to shut up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jesse goes on that being fucked over by the Lord isn't unique. God knew all along that the world would be full of slaughter and suffering. He made it that way. Now, this is an important bit. This is Jesse explaining what God's motivation is in the world of Preacher. Because he wants us to choose him, to love him, and how much more satisfying that'd be when the hell of this earth makes the choice so goddamn hard. He wants our love. It feeds him. And he came after me and gave me all of them chances to quit. He took the risk of facing Genesis, and all for that exact same reason. He wants the love of the greatest threat to his power that ever was. Jesse also explains... He created Genesis because he wanted Genesis to love him. He also created a war between the angels so that he'd know which ones would choose him and which ones wouldn't. And he engineered the creation of the saint. You are different, big man. God wanted your hate. Now this strikes a chord with the saint. I remember a time or two way out on the prairie. I'd get the feeling something was behind me. Something waiting for me to become it. Yeah, and we have this cool full page of the Texan, as we used to call him back before he was the, the saint. Yeah, the saint in mortal form. Walking on the prairie with the shadow of the saint, the red-eyed silhouette looming behind him. He's still looming, guys. And this is just a chilling page. Yeah, such fucking great art. Oh man, this is so good. And so, finally convinced, the saint of killer speaks up. What's your damn plan, preacher? And Jesse says, I could have told you the plan a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> because they did kind of talk about the plan a little bit. That, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, that is an issue of preacher that ends with the word preacher. No, that's true. I don't know how many of those there are. Although, there's one in the Masada arc that ends, How fast do you reckon you can preach? Which is close, but not exactly the same. Yeah. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, it's all coming together. This is pretty fucking awesome and ominous. I was going to say this is some heavy plot material. We're going to get a little bit of distraction next time, deal with some some wrapping up some loose ends. 
but this is Jesse putting his plan in motion for the final confrontation. Yep, this was two very ominous comic books. Most of the best art in these comics was really kind of scary stuff. Yeah. You know, we've got that we've got that great page of the Santa Killers that we just described. We have the angels ripping each other to pieces in the great civil war of heaven. And we've got the massacred people of Ratwater. You know, lots of good horror art in these two issues. Yeah, you know, Preacher goes back and forth between being kind of a Western comic or kind of a comedy comic. It plays with various genres. It has fun with the tropes and cliches of American entertainment. But the Saint of Killers himself is like right out of horror. He is a horror character. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting how this comic book, this comic book series can be so many different things. I was reading an article recently, sort of an opinion piece, where somebody was talking about AMC mm-hmm. and how it's kind of wandered away from a successful formula. AMC, the opinion goes, sort of created like prestige drama, not on premium cable. Uh, on basic cable? Right. Yeah. Yeah. With Mad Men and Breaking Bad yeah. in particular. But Walking Dead was such a success that now there's like two Walking Dead shows and plans for like two more and some TV movies. And the writer's premise, which I don't know that I really agree with, although obviously I think that uh, Walking Dead is overexposed, Mm -hmm. was that AMC is now leaning too hard on sci-fi. Okay. And they kind of used Preacher as one of Mm -hmm. their examples of that. And then later that day... I went on a date with someone who's a fan of the TV show Preacher. Okay. And they also kind of, like, boiled it down to, like, you know, oh, it's a, you know, nerd show. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it's a, it's a comic book show. Yeah. But actually, like, the comic book series Preacher is so many different things. Yeah. It's a, a love story and a dissection of the cliche of the sort of unbreakable male friendship yeah but i mean you've got times where it's horror and you've got times where it's you know gunfights with special ops guys yeah like action movie kind of thing yeah and you've got times where it's like a very realistic war comic Mm -hmm. you know it's sort of garth ennis's exploration of kind of all the themes and tropes that appeal to him yeah, well, yeah, it's 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 very cinematic, and we've said that before in reference to the way that Steve Dillon does uh, art and layouts, which is generally incredible and very effective storytelling. But also in the sense that, like, there's a dozen different genres of movie that are being represented in here, and it's very aware of that it's doing that. Right. I remember doing some research for this episode and reading stuff that was going on in the preacher show, and I'm 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 uninformed about the preacher show. I have not seen it, but it does seem like it strikes me as very like True Blood, which is also a series that I did not finish. Yeah, and sort of read summaries of stuff that had happened after I had quit, and it's very sort of in love with its own mythology and and flaunting the fact that it's complex, flaunting the fact that weird shit happens on this show. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit horror and a little bit black comedy. I think even if he didn't get the characters and the plot quite right, Seth Rogen more or less did get the tone. Okay. Of, like, 
you know, we want this show to be dark and scary and darkly funny all yeah. at the same time. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of sort of weird mythological stuff going on, but it's often it's often very funny the way it's presented or the way the characters don't take it seriously. So Garth Ennis, I think, when he's doing his shocked thing, yeah. which neither of us are really huge fans of Garth Ennis's shocked thing, yeah. but it's this, like, sort of super dark humor with shades of satire in it, shades yeah. of social satire. And I think Preacher really goes for that, especially the way that, uh, I mean, Preacher the TV show really goes for that, especially the way that the first season... Instead of destroying Anvil right away yeah. uh, in issue one, as the comic book does, it spends the whole first season there so that it can do this kind of, like, social satire of a small town. Right, yeah. Yeah, and really get into the sort of Jesse's complaints that he makes in the first issue that we only we only hear from him in the comic book. Right. Yeah. Of course, in the show, I guess you could make the case that Anvil and Salvation are sort of merged into one town. So yeah, at least in the Odin Quinn canon is added in right at the beginning. He's a citizen of Anvil. Right, exactly. I think we should probably mention the fact before we leave these issues that what we saw here today was mostly conversation. Yeah, the entire second issue is a conversation between Jesse and the Saint. Yeah, with cuts away to a conversation between Star and his underlings. Right, and it's good that Garth Ennis has the skill to make a conversation such compelling reading, you know? And part of that is that the dialogue is, like, sparkling, mm -hmm. and part of it is that he has the ability to, you know, to indulge when he wants to, to, like, a flashback or, you know, an illustration and a side of some kind. You know, a horrifying mob of mutilated ghosts. Whatever, you know? <laughs> the, uh, the saint certainly has a way of making a point. Whatever keeps the conversation going. <laughs> I like the way that the saint is basically a force of nature, a force of death. And Jesse, obviously not physically, but he is able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him on a conversational level. He is able to keep him locked in and listening. and stand up to his bullshit well i just have one question left for you sean what was tulip probably up to <laughs> <laughs> in may of 2000 yeah yeah exactly i mean if i had to guess i think she already parted ways with amy and we we did get a mention that the truck was full of guns so that's like the main thing that I would expect Tulip to be up to right now, is preparing for the showdown by making sure that all her equipment is in order. So you think that she's kind of taking apart and reassembling all of her vast arsenal? Yeah, she's loading everything. I mean, she is walking towards Trinity as the shelves are coming in from the distance. Yeah, lots of guns. Exactly. That's what I think she's really up to. And if I were trying to come up with a joke answer, it would be different, obviously. No, uh, I'm, I'm just not yeah. that funny. Sorry, everybody. Well, and you didn't do any research, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't expect this question. Things that happened in this month. But no, no, but, no Tulip in these two issues. But it's legit. True. We don't see Tulip. Uh, we always miss Tulip when she's not around. Yeah, well, I think I think it's probably worth noting that the way this is structured, this is the first two issues of an eight-issue story arc. It's not a story arc that stands on its own. Right. 
yeah, we get the barest little bit of Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pretty good Cassidy scene, but only one scene. Mm-hmm. God is there, but he doesn't have any lines. Yeah, we're getting all our players on the table. Jesse, Cassidy, the Saint, God, the Grail. Right. Okay, well, I think that just about wraps it up for this week. In our next Preacher episode, we swear this time, every dog will get his due. But join us in two weeks, as we mourn the death of a friend. In the, the Wake, Sandman. Vertiguys is written and hosted by me and Sean. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you like writing emails, you can write one to us. Just put vertiguys at gmail.com in the subject line. No, not the subject line. <laughs> well, My you, bad. If you like writing emails, you probably know how to, how to address them. <laughs> Put it in the recipient line. You've probably already detected our mistake. <laughs> what about the people who like sending tweets? What should they do? Oh, well, if you want to tweet at us, you can reach me at BlankCastSean. You can reach Eric at Vertiguys. And for people who like Facebooking, Facebook.com slash Vertiguys. We're just all over the fucking internet, man. Yep. If you want to leave us a positive review somewhere electronically... That's always very much appreciated. If you want to get a friend of yours drunk and convince them that they should subscribe to the Vertiguys podcast, we appreciate that even more. <laughs> That's a personal sale made. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. So, first order of business, everyone in Persona 5 is a fucking asshole. Okay, so it's like you intervene to stop this guy from raping a woman on the street, right? And as a result, like, you get probation. <laughs> he got probation. <laughs> okay, and now you're like living above this dude's coffee shop. And he's like, you cause any trouble here, I'll throw you out first thing. And then they take you to this school and everyone there is like, you cause any trouble here, you'll be expelled. First thing, don't cause trouble, troublemaker. And then, like, there's, like, another scene where there's, like, a couple of teachers talking. And the teacher is like, can't believe they put a convict in my class. Why me? Oh, this is the worst luck. Because wow. you stopped a dude from raping a lady. Well, like, <laughs> like, all of you people are the worst. There's some serious keep-your-head-down politics in there. I think that is kind of the point, though, because, like, once you start stealing hearts, there's a whole thing where you're trying to change society for the better. Because it is fucked up. Oh, I see. So the whole point is that, like, society is... Yeah, there is injustice baked into society. That's, that's a theme, I, I think. It seems that way. <laughs>